Hey, good morning, Watermark Community Church and those who are with us to explore the faith. So good to be with you this morning. And we just hosted the IF Conference. This is a ministry to women from around the world. We got some IF people here that stuck around. Cool. We wondered if it was like, hey, we came for the conference and now you'd be here on a Sunday. So welcome. You know, the scriptures are clear that there is one Christ, one Lord, one baptism, one spirit, and one church. The church just happens to meet in different places, but we are one body. And so thank you for joining us here this Sunday. So if you drive around Dallas, really like many parts of the world, you'll, you'll notice tagging uh, by gang members who are like, you know, they're spray pinning. I see some head nods of like, you know, maybe on a utilities thing, on a street sign, they'll tag it with like their name. Like, this is who I am, this is where I roll. And I was walking in this morning, I walked in through the loading dock back here behind stage and like something stopped me in my tracks because I was like, hold up, I saw this. (laughs) And I don't, you know, TA and I have only known each other for like, you know, year and a couple months uh, when he moved here. And so I I think he's like wrestling with an identity thing. Maybe he's gonna be like gangster pastor, maybe gospel pastor, maybe maybe a mashup gangster gospel pastor, but I think he's tagging things. No, I don't, he didn't spray paint that. I have no idea why a dolly has TA on it. But what I do know is that I used to wrestle with identity and still do in a sense. Uh, when I was, you know, teenager, I had three fake IDs confiscated from me. You're like, where did you get so many fake IDs? I was creative, you know, I wanted my alcohol. But three of them, one from a liquor store, one at a concert, one, the guy took it and I literally was like, hold on, let me see that. Look right here, grabbed it and ran, like bolted. And the reason why I had a fake ID is because I wanted to portray someone I was not to get something I didn't have. I portrayed who I wasn't to get what I wanted. Because I was born with an identity like John Andrew Elmore, but I started putting forth this fake ID because I didn't have what I wanted. And I think that I'm not alone in that. In fact, I think every single person in this room, every single person who can hear my words right now has a fake ID. I think there is a a fake identification that we put forth. It's like we are who we are in Jesus, but then there's there's this veneer that we put over because we want what we don't have. So we say who we aren't to get what we want. And maybe that's like how pretty you are, how skinny you are, how athletic you are, how good your kids are, where you live, how much you make, what you drive. And we start to find identity in those things that becomes a fake ID behind the real identity that Jesus has given us. And what we are going to see in the word today and why I'm so excited about today's passage is God's truth about your identity will dispel all the other fake IDs that we're tempted to represent. His identity for you in Jesus Christ your Lord will dispel all of that. And then as a result, like who you are will inform what you do. Your identity will beget action. It will create in you a response as we live out our true identity in Jesus as we follow him. The text that we're gonna be in as we continue in 1 Peter is chapter two, verses 13 through 25. I'm gonna read it now. This is the ESV. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. That right there is a little uh, micro 
collapsed version of Romans 13, where he's like, every governmental authority, every authority has been established by God. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but, here it is, living as servants of God. There is the identity. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Our roadmap for today and the three points that we're gonna walk through is God's identity for you, which is a servant of God. His identity for you, his calling for you, which we're gonna see in this passage, is to suffer. One of the calls upon your life is to suffer. And then his example for you, which is Jesus. God's identity, God's calling, and God's example for you. And as this unfolds, you're gonna see also, and this isn't the, the main point of the passage, but you're gonna see, he's like, there's governmental authority that you are under. Then there's going to be work authority, or it could be school authority, your student um, that you're under, but you don't need to worry whatever you do as you navigate those circumstances because all is under God's authority and you are his. He's the shepherd and overseer of your soul. And so no matter what authority, you're under God's authority. And therefore, point one, God's identity for you. God's identity for you is that you are a servant of God. He says it explicitly here in the text. And he's going to see in this passage you will see in this passage, he's gonna ask us to do many things. Three times he's gonna say, do good, do good, do good. But the doing good is informed by who we are, which is servant of God. Our identity begets that activity. Because we are servants of God, then we act on his behalf. And when you act on behalf of God, by essence, the fruit that's born is good. And so it says, be subject to the Lord's sake, in verse 13, to every human institution. It says emperors and governors. And then in 17, he like bookends it. And he says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. Now, Jesus, as he walked the face of the earth was under Roman authority. And he did not agree with everything that Rome was doing. He didn't agree certainly with the, the persecution and oppression of the Jews or the crucifixion of he himself or that they were literally feeding people to wild animals in the Colosseums. But yet, he says, be subject and honor because you can disagree without 
still honoring, you can still honor and be subject to all the while while disagreeing as Jesus did. I think it's also interesting here, and this, this is instructive for us. He says, love the brotherhood. He's talking about the family of God, the brothers and sisters of Christ. And so even as we welcomed those who are here from if, it's like all the brotherhood. If you're in Jesus, then we are all one family. But I think what happens today is there becomes this Christian tribalism where it's like, ah, like, I know we align on the seven doctrinal essentials of the Christian faith, but man, you're kind of like, a little far right or a far left in these gray issues or whatever it may be, like I don't land there. And so we separate ourselves from them. We think less of them. We exalt ourselves above them. And here he's like, no, no, love the brotherhood. And love means all of the brotherhood. There's none that you're like, nah, not, not, not my weird cousin who believes something a little different. But rather he's like, no, all of them. And the other thing that he says throughout all this, he's like, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Fear God is the only one that he says fear. He doesn't ascribe fear to, to anyone else. He doesn't say fear the emperor, fear the governor. Brother, he's like, you fear God. And as TA unpacked in a message recently about just this reverential fear that we are in glad submission to God. When you fear God, you have nothing left to fear. It's like, come what may. Like I, I fear God, he's sovereign, he moves providentially, and therefore as I fear him, I don't fear you, I don't fear the circumstances, I don't fear the suffering that's coming upon me because I fear God alone and as a result, I have nothing left to fear because I am a servant of God. Verse 15, it says, for this is the will of God. Now I know, like I've been, I've been in, the, in the conversation, I myself have asked like, God, what's your will for my life? What do you want me to do? Right here explicitly is like, for this is the will of God. You're like, who am I supposed to marry? He's like, no. <laughs> that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So you're eager to know God's will for your life. He says like, do good. I have sent you out into this dying, hopeless world as my servants, and I need you to do what I've asked you to do, which is to bring good, bring blessing, like you do on my behalf, you're a servant. We tell our kids often, because they're like, hey, can we go this, can we play that, can we? And we're like, have to's before want to's. Have to's before want to's. And so they've gotta do some of their chores before they go and do certain things that they want to do. And in the same way, God's like, hey, there are many Christian freedoms, many things that you can do, but there are some have to's before you get to some of those want to's, and one of those is to do good to others. In this passage where it says that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people, here's how it summarizes this, is that our actions silence the arguments of others. Our actions have the power to silence the arguments of others. I mean, that's incredible, but we don't want it that way. We flip it, we're like, no, no, I want my argument to silence the actions of others. I don't like how they live. I don't like what they do. I don't like what they're saying online. So I want, I want my action to silence them. Like I want my argument. I'm just gonna like quarrel with them. And it says in 2 Timothy 2, we must be gentle, able to teach, correcting those who are astray, not quarrelsome. We're not to argue. Here God says in his words that our actions silence arguments the foolishness of ignorant people. Elizabeth Elliot was one of the five who was killed. They were, 
missionaries who had gone into the South American jungles to an unreached people group called the Alka Indians. They were speared to death, left for dead in the river. Elizabeth Elliot was back um, at their home and she takes her children. After her husband had just been killed, she takes her children and literally walks into the tribe who had just murdered her husband and raised her kids there. (laughs) And as if that act wasn't enough of just like the incredible faith to walk into your murderer's village and raise your children, she led them to faith in Jesus. Then the tribal leaders who literally speared those five men led their tribe to Jesus. Elizabeth's actions silenced the arguments of others. And so I want you to think, like, we're here that we would be changed. It's not informational, but transformational. So who is it that grinds on you, that you just want to argue with? Think about who that is right now. Roommate, neighbor, coworker, boss, fellow student. And purpose right now, I'm going to do good to that person. I'm gonna do good. And when it says to silence the foolishness of ignorant people, it's not that they're idiots. Like God has some incredibly smart, unbelieving people walking this earth. So apart from that, it's not saying like, oh, they're just idiots. When you look at the Greek, it's a gnosis without knowledge of of morality. It's like they, they don't understand this. They're not holding the same compass. They're not idiots, they're very smart. But that it's, our actions that would silence the arguments that lack the morality or the immorality that they're trying to put forward because we're servants of God. In verse 16, it says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but, here it is explicitly, living as servants of God. There is your identity, God's identity for you. Your identity begets action. Doctors labor to give healing. Police officers labor to protect. Teachers labor to teach. There's all these different roles. Their identity informs their activity. It's explicitly what they do. I talked to somebody just recently from Southwest Airlines. Like what they do is put people in different places. That's what they do. Their identity informs their activity. And so it is with us. And so one of the values of the church is fully surrendered, that we would be fully surrendered to Christ. That's the epitome of servanthood. The, the word here is do loss, that you're, a, you're a, a, a servant in glad submission to God, like you've, you've relinquished your rights. You're like, I don't, I'm not living for you. I'm a servant. I don't call the shots. I don't dictate to you what, what I would have you do for me, but rather you lay out for me in your word what you would have me do, and then I'm gonna, I'm gonna walk that out. As it says in Galatians 2.20, for I've been crucified with Christ. There's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live for the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He's like, he's all about it now, Paul. He's like, my whole whole life's gone. I'm now a servant of God living for the will of God. (laughs) McDonald's, I I was preparing this message as I thought about like that, you know, a servant has relinquished rights. You walk into a McDonald's and they're like, welcome to McDonald's, how may I help you? And this is their sign. Their sign says billions and billions served, not billions and billions sold. They could say that, but instead they they look at it as, no, we're serving people. We're not selling to people, we're serving to people. And I think it should be like something that's on our heart from this as we say we're living as servants of God. That it's like, all right, eight billion people on this earth served. 
by the church of God, because we're servants of God, here explicitly in the text, we're gonna live as servants of God, so eight billion served. Gordon MacDonald says this about servants. He says, you'll know you're growing as a servant by how you act when you're treated like one. You'll know you're growing as a servant when, how you act when you're treated like one. So when you're treated like a servant, do you just respond and continue serving and doing good? Or are you indignant about it? We've relinquished our rights, we're servants of God. Next, God's identity for you, servants of God. Now we're gonna see God's calling for you, God's calling for you. And this is sobering. God's calling for you, and, and there are multiple callings. He calls us as his children. He calls us unto a future grace and glory that is to be revealed. But right here, one of the callings upon everyone who has trusted in Jesus is to suffer. A call upon your life is to suffer. And honestly, I have no idea how prosperity gospel false teachers what they do with this text because it's so clear that a call upon our life is to suffer. As I thought about this, I was thinking about the, the Texas State Fair and we're there with the family and the kids were wanting to go into the fun house with like the mirrors and all that. And right beside the fun house was that swinging ship, you know, that's got the tire spinning. It just like jettisons this, this pirate ship that, that tilts back and forth. And that's good and fun until you get all the way inverted and then it just stalls. Now, when it stalls, we're sitting there in line for the, the fun house and all of a sudden it's like, like iPhone smashed to the ground, wallets. You hear change falling and you know the fair worker's like tip jar, like just, just <laughs> scratching it up. Like I told you, every time there's a little box that's like put your belongings here. You're going to get turned upside down. And to the point where our oldest Hill, he's like, I don't wanna go in the fun house. We had made it to the front of the line. He's just sitting there watching all the contents of everyone's purses and pockets just fall to the ground. Android, iPhone, wallets, hats, all of it. He's like, this is unbelievable. So you can either listen to the guy or you can listen to reality. You can either listen to the guy at the fair that says like, hey, you're gonna get flipped, like put your stuff away. Or you can listen to reality. It's mind blowing to me that the people in line for the pirate ship aren't like, okay, man, that was, okay, okay, cool. Like, I get it. But we do the same thing, don't we? We see it happen to other people like, man, that's, that really stinks, that, that must be hard, oof. I'm so sorry that your house burned. I'm so sorry, someone just laughed because I just pointed at them. It's, it's not funny, they were safe. Uh, but literally that happened. I'm so sorry that you got that diagnosis. I'm so sorry about that, but I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm good. And we think like, well, surely my life's not gonna flip. Surely, surely, that's just like not gonna happen to me. But God's call upon us is suffering in part. And in case you think like, okay, what, really? Is that, did you just cherry pick that scripture out of there? Like, is it really the case? Check this out. Acts 14, 23, Paul is in Lystra, Iconium, and Derbe. And it says that he was encouraging and strengthening the disciples there. You wanna know his pep talk? This was his pep talk, that it is through many trials and tribulations you must enter the kingdom. That the means by which you're going to enter the kingdom of God is through many trials and tribulations. And he says the word must, not might, must. 
And then you turn to 1 Thessalonians 3.3. And it says that no one would be moved by these afflictions as he's talking about suffering. And then he says these words that are so sobering. He says, for you know that we were destined for them. Destined for suffering. And then you've got Philippians 1.29. Look at this. I mean, it can't get more explicit than this. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. That as we suffer in, in a theological, spiritual, unseen sense, we are suffering for Christ. And that makes it incredibly redemptive, this calling upon our lives to suffer. Some of the suffering is going to happen at work. Verse 18, it says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. The, the, the word there is charis. It's like this pleases God. This is, this is good in his sight. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. And so point for verses 18 and 20 is to crush your work even when you're being crushed. That, that our job is not to like buck against authority or punch out and quit, but that it's to crush your work even while you're being crushed. He says, I know that some of you are suffering unjustly under these harsh masters as your servants or students under teachers or whatever it may be, athlete under coach, whatever the environment is when you're under a different authority, as you're being crushed, suffering unjustly, he's like, crush your work. Continue to do good, like silence them by how good you're doing. We should be, as Christ followers, exceptional in our work. And that just means unusually good. Not unusually obstinate, not unusually difficult, not unusually grumbling, not unusually quitting before without any kind of fortitude, but rather we should be unusually good. He says, do good to those, especially the ones who are harsh as you suffer unjustly. But he says, mindful of God. That the way you get through that is not like, all right, he said to just like, do good, even though I'm suffering, even though they're being terrible, I'm just gonna like, I got this, all right, I'm gonna go in Monday, I'm gonna crush my work even while I'm crushed. No, he says, being mindful of God. It's the mindfulness of God as you're walking through the crushing that is pleasing to him. It's how you're gonna navigate those circumstances. And so it's like Peter, as he's like, Second person, only to have walked on water. He sees Christ there, he's like, call me out of the boat. And so he starts walking on the water. When his eyes are on Christ, he's good. As he starts to look at the wind and the waves, he starts to sink. When his eyes are on Jesus, he's good. Wind and waves, sinks. Eyes on Jesus, good. And so it is for us. It's when mindful of God and you're suffering unjustly, it's a gracious thing in the sight of God. And you're gonna be able to move through that suffering. But when you start to look at the wind and the waves, that's when we're gonna to start to sink. Here's what I think. I think we reject prosperity theology while expecting a prosperity reality. I think we're like, no way. That's not healthy, wealthy, and wise. No, that's, that's not what the truth is. But man, I hope that's my reality. I hope that's my experience. I pray for that to be in my experience. I reject the theology. I'm not following those false teachers, but man, I hope that's how my life goes. And here it says, no, you've been called to suffer. Verse 21a, it says, for to this you have been called. This is a referent back to suffering. 
calling upon our life. That's inescapable for everyone who has decided to follow Jesus. And so I think about the storms that just passed through. Like it's a beautiful sunny day today. Incredible spring day in Texas. Well, Thursday night, I mean, we're like, our, I don't know about where you were. My family was huddled up in a windowless bathroom. My son was like, take the mirror off the wall. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's probably a good idea actually. As like 85 mile an hour winds ripped through Dallas. I mean, we were driving to school on Friday and there's like a massive tree laying across the street. Just like, boom, 100 year old tree, flattened. And so the storms come, we've already forgotten it. We're gonna walk outside and be like, ah, oh, beautiful day. We've already forgotten, there was a terrible storm. And there's gonna be another terrible storm that comes because we live in North Texas. And there's gonna be ones after that. It's just inevitable. It's reality atmospherically. It's gonna be reality spiritually. We can't forget this. We've got to remember. Laura and I have been texting the last, like, I don't know, month, just uh, uh, walking through a difficult time. It's like, you know what? We're praying for God to heal. We're praying for God's grace to get us through this. Um, we're praying for circumstances to change. But more than any of that, you know what we've started praying? Is God give us the grace to suffer well. Like we want you to heal and you might, but if you don't and regardless, would you give us the grace to suffer well because we're suffering for you ultimately, Jesus. We had this friend in college, went to Baylor University and I, rem I remember literally sitting on Bagby <laughs> at this front porch and we're, you know, I don't know, day drinking, smoking cigarettes, whatever we were doing, we were idiots back then. And here comes this fraternity brother of ours, like in short shorts, like short, very short. That's burning my mind too, just like ripping down Bagby. We're like, what's he doing? And then he comes back by. And then he's like pull-up bar in the backyard, like, you know, not even like, like what? What are you guys doing? Sit-ups, the works, like all of it. We're like, what are you doing? Well, I'll tell you what he was doing. He was training to become a Navy SEAL. And it wasn't like, oh, I hope I make it through BUDS basic underwater, underwater demolition. He's like, I not hope I make it. He said, I am going to be a SEAL, and he was. Now he knew in college that he was about to go through the most difficult military training on the face of this planet. And so he purposed himself to prepare for it. Because he knew, let me say it to you this way, because he knew that his suffering was inevitable, it made his preparation essential. Because his suffering was inevitable, his preparation was essential, and so it is for us. If this is the reality, if God has said plainly in his word, a call upon your life is suffering, then it makes our preparation essential because the suffering's inevitable. And so how do we prepare? And do we prepare now? Or are we just like sitting on a theological porch or we're like, no, no, no. I mean, I know the storm's coming. So I'm gonna feast upon the word. I'm gonna surround myself with brothers and sisters in Christ who will encourage me and love me and pray for me. I'm gonna confess and repent from sin. I'm gonna pray and bring God into everything so I'm ready when anything comes upon me. It says, for this you have been called, have been called. My father-in-law has this uh, shed by his fire pit and you know, after the rains and wood's wet, we'll go in there and there's fire logs. You got like a big stack of fire logs, pull one out. They're really just taking up space when they're in the shed. But if you pull one out, it doesn't matter if 
logs are wet or whatever, you throw it in the fire pit, and all of a sudden there is, there is a fire that has begun as I light that fire log on fire. And it gives off light and warmth and people gather around it. And it's exactly a picture of our lives here as we were called to suffer. We were made to burn. That our lives would be given up as a fragrant offering for God, like not my will, your will be done. I'm not out to take up space or to keep myself safe, but rather God, like, and it's, it's, it's a, <laughs> a scary prayer in a sense. Like, all right, Lord, you do what you see fit as my life would burn as an offering to you that I would give off the light of Christ, the warmth and love of Christ, that others might come to Christ to be a city on a hill, to be salt, all for you. God's identity for you, God's, which is servants of God, God's calling for you, which is suffering, and then God's example for you, Jesus. God's example for you is Jesus. This is verses 21b through 25. And before God would say, Jesus, God in flesh would say like, hey, you follow me, follow my example, look what he does. Like Jesus identifies himself as a servant. He says, I didn't come to be served, but rather to serve and give my life as a ransom. So he embodies for us our identity, God's servant. Jesus is like, well, I'll go first so that you can follow me. And when it says that God's calling on our life is to suffer, Mark you know, portrays him as the suffering servant. In fact, as he's going into Jerusalem, he says to Peter, he's like, Peter, who do they say that I am? And he's like, well, some say Jeremiah, some say, and he's like, yeah, but who do you say? He's like, well, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the son of the living God. And he's like, blessed be you, Simon Barjona, for man is not revealed to you, but the Father and the Son of Man must go and be betrayed and suffer many things at the hands of the religious leaders and be killed. And Peter's like, may it never be, Lord. And he says, Get behind me, Satan, for you have in mind the things of man, but I have in mind the things of God. He's like, I came to suffer. The calling upon my life is to suffer. How would you ever get out of the suffering that you're going to experience forever in hell eternally apart from me giving my life for you? It's why I've come, Peter, so that I can get you free from your suffering by me laying my life down in suffering perfect son of God, live a sinless life, die a death upon a cross, be buried, raised again, that we could be set free from eternal suffering. He's like, this is why I came. So he sets forth that example. Verse 21b, it says, because Christ also suffered for you. It's not just theologically true. He suffered for you, for you. If you can hear my words, he suffered for you. He had you in mind. I'm laying down my life for you that you would be forgiven of your sins. All that he went through was his love for you. And then it goes 21C. It says, leaving you an example. Well, what's the example? The example is in suffering. He suffered as you now are called to suffer, and he's gonna walk you through how he suffers now, that you might follow in his steps. This is God's example for you in Jesus. So what love now has gone to what example? How much he loved you, he suffered for you, now he's given an example for you. The Greek word for example is hupogrammo. It means under writing, under 
writing. Like think tracing something. At Valentine's Day, Judd, our five-year-old, was like, Dad, I need you to write, I love you, Mom. I'm like, why? He's like, because I want to write it. But he didn't know how to write. He needed me to go first, write it, that he could trace the letters, like in his feebleness, like I need you to go. And so it is. Jesus has gone first, laid his life under, that we might follow in his example, hupogrammo, to trace his life. So what's the example? Like if we're to follow Christ's example, and now Peter's gonna give us this example, but I, I wanna say this first. Gandhi, there's this famous quote that is bogus. He says, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. They are so unlike your Christ. Which sounds like kind of winsome, like, oh really, you like our Jesus? Like, okay, cool. No, he didn't. He did not like our Jesus. He did not understand our Jesus. He liked the Jesus of his own fabrication. He made up a Jesus in his mind that fit into his false theological grid and was like, well, I like that guy. He's a nice moral man. Like he loved the poor. He touched lepers. He healed. He seemed like a good teacher. No, no, Gandhi did not like Jesus. For Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through the Son. You see, if Gandhi liked Jesus, he would have followed Jesus. He would have put his faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of his sins, and he would have rejected 33 million Hindu gods if he would have liked Jesus. He didn't like Jesus. He did not know Jesus as an example. But we do the same thing. We start to make our own fabricated Jesus of like, well, Jesus would never call me to suffer. Jesus would never, and it's like, no, no, we, we're gonna walk through his example that we would live according to it. So what is it? Verse 22, it says, and we're gonna go through these quickly. He says, he committed no sin. Jesus committed no sin. All the pressures, all the temptations bearing down on him, he committed no sin. And I think we need to repent daily. We need to repent daily of sin. John Owen said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. And we're never gonna be sinless, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, we will be sinning less. And so when it says he committed no sin, we need to follow his example and be like, man, I'm done with it. I don't wanna toy with it anymore. Like these things, these poisonous, fleeting pleasures that are killing me, that are tasteful in the moment and death in the next, I'm done with it. I don't wanna commit any more sin anymore. This is why Christ died. Why would I tangle and toy with these things? It says, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When things got hard for Jesus, he didn't lie, spin things, wordsmith things, or flatter anybody. Deceit was not found in his mouth. He was authentic. He was true. He was whole. Mark Twain said, uh, always tell the truth. You'll never remember what you had to say, what actually happened. And it's so true, like deceit's not found in, but I think when pressures come in, we can start to weasel our way out, or maybe I'll just tell, tell a little white lie, and it says, speak the truth in love. And just like, be free. Verse 23, it says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. We can learn a ton here. With social media, people being canceled, getting blasted, getting trolled, like the world is just mean right now. Spirit of meanness crazy. But it says, when reviled, he didn't revile in turn. He did not revile in turn. He didn't care about self-vindication. People say false things about him. It's like, say what you want. That says more about your heart than it does what's reality about me. 
out of the overflow of a heart, mouth speaks. Like, I'm, I'm good. I know who I am. I've got my identity secure. I'm a servant of God. And so he's not after self-vindication, and neither should we be. It's fruitless. It says, when he suffered, he did not threaten. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He was mistreated and had no threat of revenge. In Romans chapter 12, it says, do not take revenge. And you're like, oh, great. So I'm, a, I'm just going to be a Christian doormat for the rest of my life? Like, awesome. So I'm going to get mistreated. You've called me to suffer, and I can't take revenge. Like, cool, great. God doesn't stop there. He says, it's mine to avenge, says the Lord. He's like, no, I'm, I'm going to deal with sin. I don't want you to deal with sin. Did you want me to deal with your sin? <laughs> no, I didn't think so. So why don't you have grace towards them the way I had grace towards you? You don't take revenge. I'm going to deal with sin. And as a result, when suffered, he did not threaten. So we need to take word from that and follow his example. It says, it continues, it says, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He's talking about God the Father. He's like, I'm not, I'm not worried about you, Rome, Caiaphas, Ananias, anybody. I'm not worried about my circumstances, even as he goes to the cross. He's like, I'm not worried. I'm entrusting myself to him who judges justly because God's got me. So what are you going to do to me? Like God is sovereign over me under every authority. Like he's got me. He's providentially working. Like God's got me. So it's okay. I have entrusted myself to him who judges justly. And so because he feared God, he had nothing left to fear. It's like, say what you please, do what you please. I'm a servant of God. Verse 24, it says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. This is the crux of the point, like the culmination of it. As he follows the example, it's, it's what's called a chiasm, which is a, an X. It's like, all right, we got example coming here. We got example coming from the end. We're going to meet right here in the middle. And it is the biggest point. He bore our sins on the tree, which is the cross in his body, laid down his life. Jesus Christ, God in flesh, died that we would go free, raised again to be justified with God, not that we could just be forgiven, be made new, born again, filled with the Spirit, made a part of the brother and sisterhood of God Almighty forever and ever. All because he bore our sins. It's an amazing truth and reality. But you can't follow Christ's example without following his death. Like we don't get to like, okay, can I just like all la this deal? Like, okay, I won't revile when revile, but like, you died. He's like, no, lay down your life. Take up your cross when? Daily and follow me. We've got to die daily to the flesh, to the world, to our own ego and desires that we might follow Jesus. It says that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. Listen, he died for sin that we would die to sin. He died for sin that we would die to sin, that we would be dead to sin and live for righteousness. That because of Jesus, First Peter 4, we're going to get to it, but it says that he who has suffered no longer lives for even evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you've spent enough time doing the past what pagans choose to do. It's like, no, no, I'm, I'm dead to sin, now living for Christ's righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. 
By his wounds you have been healed. The word heal here is the same word for healing from James 5.16, where it says, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other so that you may be healed. It is a healing supernaturally, spiritually of sin. By his wounds, you have been healed. This is a callback from Isaiah 53, the prophecy about the one who was to come who would heal us of our wounds. And here he's like, I'm gonna heal you not from any physical ailment, I'm gonna heal you spiritually. I'm gonna raise you from the dead. I'm gonna wash you from your sins. I'm gonna give you a new life. You're gonna be adopted in Christ. You're going to, this world's gonna pass away. You're gonna live forever. That's the healing that Jesus is giving us. It's soul healing, no longer children of wrath. And then verse 25. It says, for you were straying like sheep, but now return to the shepherd, one thing, and overseer of your souls. This is what you need to hear. You will never be suffering without shepherding. You will never, ever be suffering without shepherding. It says that he is near to the brokenhearted. And I've, I've been in some suffering. And I've wondered in that suffering, like, God, where are you? Like, just real talk. I'm like, I, I, I can't see you right now. I can't hear you right now. I could really use a word from you right now. And I feel alone. And this right here, I'm, I'm not going on feelings. I'm going off of the word of God, the inerrant, eternal word of God that says, he is the shepherd of my soul. And this, this shepherd doesn't take naps. Psalm 121, he neither sleeps nor slumbers. My, my youngest, Judd, um, his, his breathing got really bad one night, like, like oxygen levels down at a dangerous level and a nurse practitioner in our group, community group was like, you need to get him to the ER right now. So we grabbed Judd, throw him in the car. He's like breathing, pushing out his stomach and kind of out of it. We get him there and it's like IVs, mask, nebulizer, all this stuff going on. And he's screaming and pulling at it and everything. And then in the middle of the night, I mean, I can't sleep, right? Like, it's my boy. But he's trying to rip the thing off or he turns his head and it comes off and all night long, all night long, though he's unconscious, in and out of it, I've got that nebulizer and oxygen mask right to his face, like, that thing's not coming off. Like, I'll die before I let that thing come off of Judd. He didn't know I was there. Probably never will unless he listens to this message a long time from now. But all through your life, you will never have suffering without shepherding. God's got you. You're his son or daughter. He's going to hold that mask of mercy and grace and love and peace. And you may not see him. You may not feel him. He's got you. He does. It is a promise of scripture. And it says overseer of your soul. It doesn't say, sadly, it doesn't say overseer of your body. Every single one of us, we're gonna die. This body at least. It says overseer of your soul, not overseer of your body. But the reality is Jesus says, he who believes in me will never die because he's the overseer of our soul. And one day, this, bad, this body that's gonna be laid to rest in the ground is gonna be raised back up again, given a resurrection body and a new heaven, new earth. He's gonna oversee your soul. He will see you through. And there will be no end. 
God's identity for you, you're a servant. God's calling for you, suffer well. God's example for you, Jesus. You remember my fake ID, or IDs plural. I, I, I now have a, I got a new ID. It's not issued by the state of Texas. It is issued by God Almighty. He says, I have chosen you, I have washed you, I have adopted you, I have indwelt you by the Holy Spirit. You are mine and no one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. That's my new identity. It's yours if you're in Jesus. And, and maybe today you're not. Maybe today you're like, I'm, I'm just here exploring. I, I don't know yet. Like I'm still living that fake identity. Today you can receive a new identity in Christ. Today can be the day of your salvation. Cross over from death to life. And also, I know, I know with a room this size, there's suffering. There is suffering in your life right now, be it financial, physical, spiritual, relational, mental, emotional. There are people in this room right now and you're like, you're talking about me, man. I'm in, I'm in the thick of it. I am in the storm right now. And in just a moment, I wanna invite you to stand because I want you to be prayed for. God says he opposes the proud, but that he gives grace to the humble. And I know it's humbling to stand up in a room like this, but I just saw the nine o'clock when a bunch of people stood and they got prayed for. So as I ask in a moment for you to stand, just in one or two words, just share with the people around you what it is, how you're suffering right now. And then body of Christ, I want you to move towards them. May no one stand and not be prayed for. You move towards them, lay your hands on them and pray. You can pray all together at the same time or one person can, can pray as the others are praying in their spirit. And if there's nobody near you, you just know that there's a whole room of people standing and you start praying or pray, prepare yourself because the suffering is inevitably coming. So right now, if, if suffering is a part of your life in any way, would you please stand that we could pray for you? Body of Christ, thank you for trusting us with your pain, by the way. I see your faces. God sees your pain. He holds every tear. Body of Christ, now move towards these brothers and sisters. Let them share briefly and then you pray over them and pray as if you would want to be prayed for. Lord God, we could, we could stay here the rest of today praying for those who need it. You've said in your word, you don't hear us because of our many words. You know what we need even before we ask. And I pray, Lord, that people might stay after the service and continue in prayer for those who have stood. And now, Lord, with everyone standing, we sing 
to our risen Savior, our example, that we would set our eyes upon Jesus and not the waves and winds of suffering, for you've called us and we are now your servants. May you hear our song to you. In Jesus' name, amen.